But then you hit Leviticus 1, and you get to see how you get to slit the throat of a bull in chapter 1. And by that time, it's, I mean, you're out, man. You're talking about the saucers and the pans of uh, how to wash and to clean and how to do this. And you are out like a light pretty fast. One of the reasons I think that happens is because um, we're not really sure how to connect Leviticus to uh, kind of the running start that you get with Genesis and Exodus. It's all narrative in Genesis and Exodus. You can make movies off of Genesis and Exodus. I mean, these things could be, in fact, they ought to. Um, but uh, you can't imagine a movie on the book of Leviticus, right? Suddenly you hit that and you go through these 27 chapters, and out of those 27 chapters, only one of them has a pretty much a straight narrative, chapter 10. And, and that chapter is simply on the killing of Aaron's two sons by God for doing it wrong. Um, other than that, it's, uh, you know, this is how you hold, uh, you know, Elsie the cow. Um, and this is where you take the knife, and this is where you put it at Elsie's neck, right? And then this is how you drain the blood, and this is how you squeeze it out, and this is how you grab the entrails, and this is how you... And it's just this incredibly tedious process that, that Moses has the people do and that God tells Moses how to do. Um, so a lot of people would just, would just rather skip it and just put it under the banner of typology and just know that, oh yeah, Leviticus points to the substance later, so I'll just look at Christ and know that Leviticus was fulfilled. But there's some incredible things in Leviticus that we want to be able to look at to see how, um, how relevant God's Word is. You know, Paul says these things were written in former times for our instruction, right? Um, so if, if Leviticus was written for their instruction, then it's also written for our instruction as well. So we can glean a lot out of this. So we're going to kind of do a sweep here, you know, 27 chapters of regulations and rules. Um, we'll do our best this morning to kind of sum it all up for you. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a, uh, a marquee uh, at a church. I think it's here on 1171. And I don't usually get into marquee signs. Most of them are kind of dopey that I see. Um, saw one. Well, someone told me about one. It was a party in hell canceled due to fire. You ever hear that one? Just You see the, the, the dopiest marquees. Like anybody's going to read that and go, that's our church. That's where I want to worship. Party in hell canceled due to fire. Nice, nice. That will draw them in right there. Uh, but there's one actually that's pretty good. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have seen it or not. It says, um, uh, "Become fishers of uh, no, be fishers of men. You get to catch them. God gets to clean them." I thought that's pretty good. God lets us catch them, and He gets to clean them. Well, that's what Leviticus is. Um, God, remember, what did they just come out of? If if, uh, if Jack did his job last week, just kidding. I'm sure he did. If, uh, what, what did the people just come out of in the book of Exodus? Slavery. That's right. And so they're in bondage here, and um, we need to really understand what that slavery really would look like. I mean, it was suffering and beatings and murder. I mean, the Egyptians were a hard people on these Jews, especially when the new Pharaoh came in. It was a hard, hard life for the Jew. And so they come out of this bondage and this slavery Okay, there's deliverance that occurs, right? And now you see them into the wilderness. And now in the wilderness, how many years are they going to be there? Forty years. That's how long. Now, how long would it take to actually walk from...
from one side of the wilderness out to the other side of the wilderness into the promised land. What's that? Yeah, well, yeah some argue with that, a group that size. Uh, maybe for an individual it might take that long, but for a group that size, probably three weeks to a month, they could probably amass their, all the people to walk through the wilderness to the other side. So instead of a month, uh, it takes them 40 years to do that. And if you've ever kind of looked at a little pattern of how it, you do it, it's kind of like the, uh, the Keystone Cops. Remember the Keystone Cops? Um, they just like, do, 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 just bouncing around. That was, that was the Israelites. Just God just kept them um, kind of high, kind of in this, uh, um, in this wilderness to clean them up. And what he did is he gave them a whole bunch of rules and regulations. If you take, for instance, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, um, the Ten Commandments are kind of like general law statements, okay, that you see unfolded even more through 603 more laws that you're, that, that you're given in Leviticus and in the book of Exodus. And the purpose of it is to show that the nation has got to look different than the world around it. That was the reason. Now, let me ask this question before we kind of get into this. Do you think that that's important to God for his people to look different than the world around them? Do you think that's still important to God? You know, that's a big question today, you know, by the way, among churches, is what does it mean uh, that God wants the church to look different than the world? What does that mean? I want to throw that out for just a second as we kind of crack into this. What do we mean by that? Does that mean that um, if the world drives a nice car, that therefore I shouldn't drive a nice car? Is that what that means? Does it mean that? Okay. What does that mean then? Whenever we should look different than the world. Does that mean that's only true internally? Does that mean only internally? In the heart we should be different? In the way we live our moral lives? Or is there anything externally based on that too? I'm not setting it up. I'm, I'm honestly throwing this out because there is a debate about this among, among Christians. I'm just kind of seeing where you guys fall on this. Um, what do you think? Okay, yeah. Uh, we would all agree with that. Yeah, the way our, we talk, coarse gesture, or what we, uh, what we talk about with respect to our values, right? What we seek. So, yeah, our speech should be different, right? It should be seasoned with salt. So that's a very good one. Um, our speech should be different than the world. How else should we be different than the world? What's that? Our dress? Okay, I'll let you go with that one. What do you mean? Okay. Um, you think there's a debate about that? Or do you think that the church would generally agree with that? That modest dress is the way it sh- we should look? Yeah, I think most would agree with that. Yeah. Then it becomes, well, what do you call modest, right? And you get in that whole debate with your teenagers as to what modest really looks like. Um, how else? There you go. Okay, yeah, what I spend my time doing, right, ought to look different, right? I mean, if we are in the church, if we are the people of God, what we spend our time doing for the world ought to be different than the majority of what the world does for the world, right? It should. Now, let me just ask some, some questions. Do we, do we dress modestly in general in the church today? Certain segments do. Certain segments do. 
Uh, do we look different than the world in the way that we serve the world? Yeah, certain segments do. Yeah, certain segments do. Okay, we're doing okay. Uh, do we do we speak differently? I mean, again, I guess we would say certain segments do. Uh, but these are important questions to ask because it's real easy today for people to say, listen, this, those physical external laws and codes, that was Old Testament. I mean, God did that to um, isolate a particular nation to physically look different. That's why they would do the things that they did. But it's a very important question to ask, how does a person today who's a child of God look different? Not simply in their heart. Okay, that's the easy answer. Oh, we are different because my heart is new, and therefore we go to the, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But is there a sense where I should actually look different, and my day-to-day life is different than the world? And I think that's an important question. Well, in the book of Leviticus, that's what this book is about. It is about holiness. And what does the word holy mean? You guys in some of your old Sunday school lessons, what does the word holy literally mean? Anybody remember? Yeah, it means separate. That's right. So when you are a holy one of God, okay, um, it's also the word in the New Testament, it's also the word translated saints. Whenever you see the word hagios, saints, it's one who is separate from the world. That's the idea that there is a distinct um, difference between this person and the people around them. Okay? So the book of Leviticus it's about holiness. That word, by the way, is used over 90 times in this book, holiness. 50 of those 90 times is found between uh, chapters 17 and 27, which is the practical rules for living um, section of the book of Leviticus. So um, holiness, looking different, is very, very important to God, particularly among the children of Israel here at this time. Now, where are they at this point? Anybody... Have uh, recall where they are physically. They're in, they're at Sinai, right? They're at Sinai. Leviticus now is a book that there's no real time. There's no chronology or time lapse on Leviticus. It's suddenly a book of regulations that's thrown in between the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. And Numbers, we get moving again. We can we can call Steven Spielberg and Numbers and get a movie made again. Okay? In Leviticus, you just kind of hit the brakes, right? And, and that's where you get these, these rules for holy living. But you've got this large mass of people, still much debate as to the size of these people. Is it in the millions? Is it in the hundreds of thousands? Whatever it is, it's most likely a very large group. They're at Sinai, and you tell me, what happens when you amass a large, large group of people in in a limited confine, right, in a limited area, and they get to be there together for 40 years. What, what kind of stuff happens? What's that? Okay, one, yeah, there's chaos that could ensue, right? Do you think you would need some rules and regulations? You bet. Number one, just for social order, you would need that, right? What else? What else would you imagine would be some of the ramifications of large masses of people in close quarters for a large period of time. That's called Manhattan, by the way, isn't it? Yeah. Well, what, what, what happens? What's that? Okay, lots of conflict. Yeah. Um, that would go along with the idea of this, this chaos of people wanting to know, what am I supposed to be doing? Where are we going? 
uh, people getting frustrated, getting angry with one another. What else? Human beings living together in close quarters. Anybody? What's that? Yeah. I mean, I remember I lived I lived in a uh, apartment, shared it with three other guys once for a while, and it was nasty. Just four of us in an apartment. And, I mean, it didn't take just a few months for that tub to get that kind of dark filament, you know, on the bottom. And you just kind of look at that and you're just like, all right, so you just put your flip-flops on and take a shower with your flip-flops. I mean, why would you possibly want to get your cleaner and scrub brush and actually get the white back? You know, why do I need to do that? i got flip-flops. So you just take your shower and your flip-flops and you look at the floor and you're just amazing. It's amazing how much hair falls on the floor that never gets swept. Just all over the floor. It's gross. And we'll stop at that point. We don't want to look at the toilet and who did toilet duty because that was always skipped. But it was gross. Just four guys in closed quarters. Could you imagine what would this look like? Large numbers of people out in the open living in closed confines. Diseases. You'd have all kinds of um, uh, issues coming up with being sick and bodily fluids. And there's a whole section on bodily fluids in the book of Leviticus and how to make yourself clean. Um, and you would have closed quarters, um, I think we're good here, uh, with all kinds of issues. You've got whole chapters on sexual purity and what that looks like. If you can imagine amassing that many people that close who are fallen people and the things that go along with fallen people in closed quarters, that you've got to have some rules and some regulations. So uh, this is an all-too-needed book right here for these people. They need to know exactly how it is that I make myself, one, physically and hygienically clean, and I need to know exactly how do I make myself clean before God. If you've got your pen, I gave you a breakdown on Roman numeral 1. I wrote chapters 1 to 15. It's kind of the rules for priestly holiness. That's, that's kind of a, a little bit of a misnomer because it, if you read Leviticus, it's not really just about the priests. Um, five, uh, one, two, three, three and a half chapters of Leviticus are dedicated to directly to the priests. The other 20 plus chapters is to the people. Okay? But it's the priests who set the rules and who are the ones who do the offerings and the sacrifices on behalf of the people. So what is the priest's role to the people? What is his role to the people? He represents what? He represents God. So, for instance, in one of the offerings we're going to look at, it's, it's sometimes called the wave offering, he'll take the bloody sacrifice and he'll wave it and then he'll eat it before the people showing God's acceptability of the sacrifice and then he'll let the people then eat of it showing what? Well, what's that? I didn't hear you. He approves and he now accepts. Now there's fellowship. That's right. So he approves of the people. The people participate now eating of it and now there's, there's fellowship that's now been um, uh, attained between the people and between God. And so the priest's role was often... The person who represented God. Okay? Now, uh, what is a typology? I've used that word once already. What's a typology? You guys have heard that word? 
I did a whole talk on typologies when we did our Old Testament or our Bible survey. Anybody know what a typology is? What's that? A type of, that's right. Yeah, very good. That's right. A study of types. Right. That's good. That's right, right. So a typology were those things in the Old Testament that were a type, or Hebrews calls them shadows, of, of things to come, right? A shadow of the substance of things to come. So it's kind of like if I put my hand up here on the table, okay, and you would see what on, on, this, on this podium? You'd see my shadow of my hand, right? You'd see kind of a, kind of a fuzzy five-fingered thing here, right? And as my hand gets closer to the podium, what becomes more distinct? The shadow becomes more distinct. It becomes more and more clear until all of a sudden I get so close till suddenly there it is and what disappears? The shadows disappear and what's there? The substance of the shadow, you see? And that's your Old Testament and your New Testament is we start here and it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through the prophets, all the way through until suddenly you get to Matthew and he's here. It's John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. As soon as they say, behold the Lamb of God, what do the people immediately associate the Lamb of God with in the past? The sack, Elsie. That's right. And all the bulls and the oxen and the rams and everything that was sacrificed, thousands of animals. When you begin to think of a community that size having to bring oxen and rams and bulls and goats and birds and everything you could think of, and they're sacrificing and killing them all and squeezing the blood out of them, this was, and as, as maybe disturbing as it may seem to us, because we're such a civilized people today, this was a blood-soaked society. Every day, constantly, 24-7, you had the offerings and sacrifices of animals constantly being made on behalf of the people. And animal after animal after animal was killed. PETA would have had gone berserk back then. But why were those offerings offered over and over and over and over again? Why? Yeah, because God wanted to make absolutely clear to the people that the offering of blood, life is required, or death is required for life to be given. In order for the atonement of sin to be given, the death of something has to be done. And not just the death, but the, but the fixation of the blood. And the way, if you read Leviticus, you'll even see that the priest now has to reach into the animal and he has to squeeze the entrails and pull out a lot of the visceral portions of the animal and squeeze the blood out and then dip his finger in and go. And sometimes he'd have to drip drops of blood on the mercy seat. And you just see it's, it's just no pun intended, soaked in blood in this text. And the reason is because someday a final sacrifice is going to come and the blood of this final sacrifice called the Lamb of God 
would take away all the sins of the world, one sacrifice, once and for all. Isn't that good news? That's the book of Hebrews. If you want a great compendium volume to the book of Leviticus, read the book of Hebrews. I mean, that's when you're, that's when you're on the varsity right there. Uh, we're not on the B team anymore. When you can take Leviticus and you can align it with Hebrews and you can show the two how they correlate and how Hebrews is the substance, Leviticus is the shadows, and you can walk through those things together, man, that's when you really begin to kind of intertwine your Bible. And it's fascinating how God does that. Um, Augustine was famous for his quote, The old is the new concealed, and the new is the old, what? Revealed. See that there's this kind of this hand in glove, there's a synergistic relationship between the old and the new that you see the same thing in both testaments as long as you, you, through the eyes of faith, are able to see what the New Testament shows as fulfillment. You go to the Old Testament and now your eyes are opened. You now see. I, I remember when I was a kid, younger, my mom, she had that children's Bible, the big old hardback 18 by 16 foot Bible. Right? It's a big thing. And she would just... You know, mom would just read it to us. Um, and it was awful. Just, I hated it. She'd make us sit on her bed and we'd start reading this thing and she'd start reading these stories and make us read it. And I just, I remember this whenever it got to, I remember that page. It was one of those um, um, reader, it was the Reader's Digest Illustrated one. And they have all these like pictures in there. And you see this one, <laughs> I still remember, you had this, this one picture with these uh, goats and these bulls with their necks uh, like they're trying to run away. Right? It's kind of horrid. They made the picture kind of horrid looking. You know, Meh! I remember looking at that and I just thought, this is terrible. And I didn't get anything of it out of it. I just remember I, I, didn't, I didn't have the mind, the eyes, the heart to see. But I remember after becoming a Christian, the first time somebody began to show me the how to connect the dots of the Pentateuch, these Old Testament practices. That's one of the things, by the way, that you know our pastor Ron loves is to really show the background information of what goes on, the Jewish practices, always showing you foreshadowing types. He, he always likes to show you, you know, um, how do these laws and these practices point to New Testament fulfillment or to Christ. See, it's a fascinating thing when you really get into it. So... Well, let's look at Leviticus here. We're going to just do a sweep here. Um, 1 to 15, I called priestly holiness. Um, it's about sacrifices. Chapter 16 kind of stands alone. It's about the Day of Atonement, which we're going to look at that in a few minutes. And then chapter 17 to 27 are about essentially sanctification, okay, practical holiness. So if you want another way to look at it, you could write it like this. Um, chapters 1 to 10 is the way to the Holy One. To God. Chapters 1 to 10. And there's two ways you do that. 1 to 7 is through sacrifice. Okay? And 8, 9, and 10 is by the priesthood. Okay? That's the way to God. The next half of it's going to be 11 to 27, and that is not the way to the Holy One, but the way to holiness. It's the way to holiness. And the rest of the book, 11 to 16, is going to be about sanitation practices. It's exciting. You should go read those chapters. Sanitation practices. And then 17 to the rest of the book is about actual sanctification. Um, how does one look more like 
what God has specifically called them to look like. All right? So, look how the book starts. I mean, it just right off the bat starts off. And this phrase right here is found out of the 27 chapters. I think it's in 21 of the 27 chapters. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And he says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. Now, by the way, remember we talked about typologies? How is that a typology? How would you connect that later? There you go, yeah. Christ was a male and was and he was with what? With no sin. He was without defect. You see, that's the idea there. Um, oftentimes it was a one-year-old male that they would offer because that was... Um, kind of the, the idea there of, of the perfect offering, the perfect purity of, of the offering. It was without defect. Um, do you remember in Malachi chapter 1 what the prophet Malachi gets onto the people for? What's that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a bit humorous, actually, when you read it, if it wasn't so offensive before God. But in Malachi 1... The people are giving their offerings to God, making atonement for their sins, and they're bringing, you know, they're bringing their goats that are sick and and maimed and blind, you know. They're bringing Leonard the goat and he can't see. They're not bringing their one-year-old male without defects. These things are their most defective goats they have. And why are they doing that? What's that? Yeah, they're selfish because to offer my best is to offer what? My livelihood. I mean, I, I could use that goat. Why, now, why am I offering this goat? I got, I got old, you know, Leonard the blind goat over here. I could offer, I could offer him. He's just not doing me any good. He needs to die anyway. He eats my oats, and I'm ready to get rid. Okay, I'll give that to God. Does that sound all too familiar, by the way? Yeah. Sure does. Um, I mean, th- that's the equivalent of. I remember I was speaking at a uh, at a pastors conference, and we were talking. about The theme was the Word of God, and I talked about how Malachi one. That was my text, and it wasn't about simply. Okay, I'm going to throw a few bucks in the plate. All right, though it could apply like that if that's where your heart is. Just kind of you know obligatorily throw a couple bucks in the plate. But I talked about that. That applies to so much more than money. That applies to the way we read and study our Bibles. You know, when we sit down, we've got 20 minutes carved out, 15 minutes, 30 minutes carved out, and maybe we're preparing for a Bible study. Maybe we're simply doing a devotional time. And we go to God's Word, and it's just a flippant, just kind of a quick spit bath in the Scriptures, and we offer that. That's a lame, blind sick goat that we offer as an act of sacrifice to the Lord as opposed to the the one without defect that if I'm going to make an act of sacrifice to the Lord an offering to Him it's going to be one that is without defect I will give the Lord my best in this moment of offering isn't that right? that's how it should be and here from the very beginning you see that God requires the best without defect 
And he does this thing called a burnt offering. Now, we're not going to go through all of them. Ron's actually gone through a lot of this stuff with us, um, the offerings and the sacrifices and the feasts. And so we're not going to go through each one of these. But I want you to at least understand what this is about. The offerings were done for one main reason. One, it was in order to atone for the sins of the people so they could approach God. Um, so you would have, for instance, in the tabernacle that was traveling through the wilderness, remember that thing? And it had the poles and the curtains and all of these things, right? And they're going through the wilderness and they would set the thing up. The very first thing that you would see when you would walk up there was what was called a laver, right? What's a laver? It's like a wash basin. And the very first thing you do before you go any farther is you wash your hands. The sign of, I'm unclean, I'm entering into holy territory, and therefore I must wash. See the picture there? Right. So now I wash. And then the next thing is an altar. It's an altar for offerings. And now I offer my, my animal, and one of the offerings that was required was what was known as the burnt offering. And what was significant about the burnt offering that was different about all the other offerings? Anybody know? It was the offering. What's that? Yeah, fire, yeah. Well, it was the offering that the entire animal was offered. The fat wasn't laid aside. Pieces of it weren't laid aside. The entire animal was consumed. And the idea was, when this offering was given, it is a complete and total commitment, an offering before God. Now, Again, let's look at the types, how this thing was foreshadowed. How was that foreshadowed in Christ? What did Christ offer of himself? Everything. Heart, mind, body, soul. His spirit even descends to Hades to proclaim to the spirits in Hades. Every aspect of Christ was offered on the Christ. In fact, we have that really perplexing passage where Paul tells us, For he... Be, became what? He became sin. He became the very foreign element that he had never tasted of before. He became sin that we might attain what? The righteousness of God. See, Jesus' life was a perfect picture of a burnt offering, a life that was fully given and offered unto God on our behalf. So you've got these different offerings that I kind of listed out here for you. The burnt offering. You've got the, the grain offering. Uh, this was an offering that God always provided for the poor. So there were certain people that didn't have the resources to always bring an animal because they couldn't always afford a bull or a ram or a calf or something like that. And so God would allow them to make grain offerings. Uh, do you remember, by the way, what was the offering that Mary and Joseph offered? It was an offering of the poor. That they had to make, that they made an offer at the temple. Remember what it was? Yeah, what kind was it? Remember? Turtle doves. Yeah. And if you look at the Levitical law, you'll see that turtle doves was the offering laid aside for the poor. Because there's birds everywhere. You just gotta get you a couple of them. And you, and you go and then you make the offering, you see? And so God is always providing for the entire nation. So that being true, uh, does it matter to God how much we give? Is that what matters to Him? No. What matters to Him? The heart from which what we give comes out of. That's why, can you give me the classic story that Jesus tells? Yeah. That's it. The widow with the two mites. 
And Jesus looks, and they're looking, and the first person that goes to give is who? Yeah, the rich man goes. And uh, some have said that, you know, these things that they would give into are made of metal or porcelain. You could hear how much coinage they're given. And, and maybe he just made it really loud. Clank, 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 clank. That's me. Clank, 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 dropping all in there. And she goes in there with her two little copper mites. And what does she do? Ding, ding. No one even takes notice. Ding, ding. And what does Jesus say? Surely I tell you, she gave more than him. Incredible? She gave more than him. See, God makes provision here, a grain offering. A grain offering? That's not worth much. Flour? What, a grain offering? You're telling me that this person can offer a grain offering and I can offer my best ram? And you're telling me that that offering could be greater than this offering? And God says what? You say right. Because it's not the offering. I don't desire merely sacrifice. What do I desire? I desire your heart. You see, obedience in your heart. See, that's what God desires. So, from the very beginning, you see that God makes provision for all. Aren't you glad, by the way, that you don't have to offer something more than what you actually have to offer? Right. Didn't get anything. In fact, the only thing that God got out of it that you actually read in the text was, remember what it said about the aroma? When, it, when they would burn it, the aroma was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Remember? Um, I think it even says his, it was a pleasing aroma to his nostrils. doesn't mean that God has a nose, by the way, but that was just language. That What was pleasing about that? What was pleasing about it is that what was involved in that was the heart of the children that he's called, making sacrifice and offering to him sacrifices of praise, atoning for their sins, and it was pleasing to him. You see? By the way, that word pleasing, is that ever used of Christ? The death of Christ? God was, remember what it says? For he was pleased at the crushing of his son. Pleased. Does that mean that he was happy? No. What does it mean? What does it mean that the sacrifice was a pleasing aroma? Does that mean that God was like, Oh, ram. Mm. Is that what he was saying? Oh, calf. No. What does it mean that it was a pleasing aroma? He was satisfied. Excellent. That's the best. That's a great word. It was an acceptable and satisfactory offering before God. In other words, God's holiness and His righteousness accepts the sacrifice. You see? So whenever it says that God was pleased to crush His Son, that means that that sacrifice was acceptable and satisfying to God for what purpose? To restore us. To restore the world back to Him. Isn't that good? So, you've got the grain offering. We All we offer is what we got. Man, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful God doesn't look at my, at the end of my life, my W-2 statement, and see, you know, how hard did I really work all my life? You know, to see how much did I really make? Um, you know, I'm glad it's not based on total number of people saved. Aren't you glad, by the way, that our entrance into heaven isn't that you've got to get 39 people saved before you leave this world, and if you don't, you're done? It's, it's based on, on a heart. 
You know, I know some people who their heart is, 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 is rich and pure and good and they offer to the Lord all that they have. Yet if you looked at their lives, you would, anybody on the outside would look and go, I don't see a whole lot that's been done significant on an external level for the kingdom of God. Yet God sees their heart. And what does He see? He sees the widow and the two mites and says she was greater than what all these other people have offered. Man, I love that. That, that gives me so much hope to know that I may not be ever, I may not never be discovered. I may never be great. I may, I may never be, you know, our name will come and our name will go. I mean, you take the greatest people who served the kingdom of God 50 years ago. Um, how many of them do we know? They come and they go, yet God remembers. And that's what's important. That's great. Absolutely. You give me your best, but it won't come close to comparing to what I'm going to give to you. That's absolutely right. Well, and in fact, what does he give? Ultimately, he gives Christ much later. But at least, what does he give him in that moment? He gives them the comfort that their sins have been covered and that they have a relationship and they're at peace with God. I mean, all i got to do is give an animal with a good heart believing in God and I get peace with him. That's an amazing, that's, a, that's right, it's a, what a great exchange that is. Uh, it's the New Testament exchange, isn't it? It's He gets our sin and we get his righteousness. There's that type again, the typology. That's a great exchange. That's good. Well, we could go on on these. You got the fellowship offering. Um, on that, the wave offering, um, communion. By the way, just to let you know, it's kind of a fulfillment of this thing. The priest would hold up the bloody offering to God and then eat a part of it, signifying acceptance by God. Um, this is the idea of taking and eating of the body and the blood of Christ. Now, can you take of communion and be out of fellowship with God, or maybe not even know God? Sure, you can. But with the right heart, when a person technically receives the elements of, of, of communion, the body and the blood of Christ, what are you saying? What is that person saying? They're saying, I am in right standing with God, that I have peace with God, and I am participating in His body and His blood and His righteousness and all that comes from it. You see? That there is a... There is a fellowship that has been restored between me and God. By the way, there is a little um, typo, 2A, the offerings. Offerings of different kids, that's supposed to be words, uh, kinds. Put an N in there. We don't offer our kids. Some of you might want to at times. Uh, a burnt offering maybe, but it's not kids, it's kinds. So I just want to make sure that you see that. A kid was also a, a word for uh, an animal. So I didn't want you to think that I was you know, technically right, because I was not. I just made an error. Um, also, look at the sin. Let me look at one more here. There's actually five of them. I gave you four. Here's the sin offering. This is also known as the guilt offerings presented for intentional and unintentional sins. The priest would lay his hands on the bull, slaughter it, signifying the transfer of sin from the people to the animal. That sounds familiar? You bet it does. It's, it's the doctrine of imputation, right? Um, Ron, you preached on the goat, right? The scapegoat. Remember, what was the word that you said that he would... 
Azazel. That's right. They would uh, they would cry that out, right? And they would he would lay the sins of the nation on the goat and then send the goat out into out of the camp, out into the wilderness, because it was believed that in the wilderness um, that's where you had the dark or the demonic forces that lived, and you would send it out into the pit. In fact, Leviticus 11 even talks about demon goats. Um, and so you have this sense of sending them away from the presence of God. Sin gets sent away from God. But you have, the, you have a teaching of imputation here. On the next sections here, you have the laws regarding the priests. Now, Aaron in chapter 8, if you remember, uh, if you remember this, Aaron now receives ordination. He and his sons receive ordination by Moses. Okay, that's what the entire chapter is about. In 9, he begins his duties, but something happens in 10 that I told you about. Do you remember his two sons, Nadab and Abihu? They were killed because what did they do that, that demanded that God take their lives? Remember, they used what the, what the Bible calls false fire. Remember that? They offered false fire meaning they didn't use the coals and the fire that God had set aside to be used. They used their own. And some argue that possibly they were even drunk when they went in to do that. So, and God takes their lives. Now, why, does, why would God take their lives at this point? What was God trying to establish? What's that? Yes, there's a connection here between sin and death and that God has very specific ways that He requires things, right? I mean, it'd be nice for us to do it our own way. Um, we try to come up with our own kind of nice theology today, don't we? I mean, we want to say that the way to God is what? what? Be good. Be kind. That's right. Just love. But God says, no, there's one way, and that's through a cross and through faith. Yes, right. Yeah, well, because remember, this is the infancy stage. Um, and God was teaching the nation about the seriousness of holiness. And so God's response is swift, it's immediate. Uh, they're like kids. It's kind of like when we have little kids. When we see rebellion when they're seven or six, our response to that is much swifter, or it should be, than if they're adults. And so God is very quick to establish his standards. We're running out of time here. I'd love to actually talk about that a little bit more. Um, but the rest of the book is about this idea of God setting this very high standard of what is required for holiness. So uh, if you guys get a chance this week, read through the rest of the book as much as you can. Read Hebrews 9 and read Hebrews 10. Those two chapters in particular show the substance or the fulfillment of all that Leviticus talks about, about the priests and the offerings.